Good morning, and welcome to Our American Heritage. I am Arch Hunter, the host of the program. Our American Heritage is a program where we explore in depth the American experience from its beginning to the present. And today our guest is Lindsay Randall. Lindsay, welcome to the program, and thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, Lindsay has a bachelor's degree and a master's degree from, tell us, Lindsay. The University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. In Fayetteville. And she graduated cum laude, is that correct? Yes, sir. Okay, I'm not sir, I'm Arch, Lindsay. Oh, yes, Arch. <laughs> so you, graduate, you graduated cum laude and I graduated, thank you, Lord. So... <laughs> Uh, uh, Lindsay has been a friend of mine, I think, five or six years now. And and listeners, I can honestly tell you, within the last two years, I haven't kidded anybody more than Lindsay Randall. She is a delight to have. She's an enjoyable person. She's a great teacher. Matter of fact, she, she was teacher of the year in her school district this past year. She has boundless energy a wonderful son, a great husband, and most importantly, she has one of the best, greatest-looking black labs in the world named Teddy. That's right. <laughs> and tell our listeners what his full name is, Lindsay, please. His name is Theodore Teddy Bonesavelt. Bonesavelt. Because he was born on the 4th of July, and we needed a patriotic puppy name. Yeah, it's a great name and a great dog. So, uh, Lindsay, you're going to be speaking to our listeners about the Battle of Pea Ridge and General Van Dorn. And you yes. did your master's thesis on Van Dorn. Is that correct? That is correct. And I'm curious first, because he is one of the lesser known Confederate generals. What was your curiosity was doing your master's thesis on General Van Dorn? That's a great question, Arch. I was actually just thinking about that question um, today because it's been a while since I thought about this. I, I wrote this thesis back in, in the oh early 2000s, and really, I was at first interested in writing about Antietam. Um, but when you write an honor thesis, you have to come up with kind of a new way of looking at things uh, that hasn't really been looked too much into before. And, and as I began to research, I realized that Antietam has been written about a lot. It was going to be really difficult for me to immerse myself in the research, um, the primary sources, because we didn't have a lot available here in Northwest Arkansas. But what we do have a lot of available is Pea Ridge information. And as I researched Pea Ridge and, and got to know Major General Earl Van Dorn on a historic level, I just was completely fascinated by him as, as a person. Um, and so that's really what, what drove my research. And first of all, I, I don't think I told the listeners, Lindsay, that you're raised a Southerner. Uh, yes, sir. Oh, and, March. Uh, Lindsay, I'm not sir. I'm March. Okay. I'm sorry. Awesome. That's awesome. what we do down here, so I'm sorry. I thought I, I, if I'm going to start calling you ma'am, if you start calling me. Okay. <laughs> and you live close to Pea Ridge, is that correct? That's right. I live about 30 minutes west of Pea Ridge. I grew up over on the eastern part of the state of Arkansas on the Mississippi River, but I have lived here in the Ozarks for over 20 years now. And forgive me also, I forgot to tell our listeners, how long now have you been teaching? I've been teaching for 15 years. And you're only 21 years old. So that's <laughs> a very young age. <laughs> that's right. What would you like to talk to first? The general, Earl Van Dorn? Or yeah, 
I think it works really well to talk a little bit about Van Dorn's background okay. because we'll be focusing so much on his role as a commander at Pea Ridge. I really like to to be fair to him and give a full picture of, of who he is. Okay, good. So the floor All right. is yours. Thank you. Uh, Earl Van Dorn was born south of Vicksburg near Natchez, Mississippi. Um, he went. He was the great nephew of President Andrew Jackson, um, which is probably what helped him get his um, appointment to the um, to West Point. But he wasn't really a great student. Um, and, and maybe Arch is, is what you mentioned about graduating. You might feel a little kinship to him. He graduated somewhere like 52 out of a class of 56. He was really low on the honor roll, um, like the behavior, the conduct roll. He got in trouble frequently for uh, a number of uh, offenses like gambling and skipping church. Um, and so he was he wasn't the best student, especially when it came to uh, strategy classes, military strategy. They, he, he, he was pretty bored by those. He's really, really interested, though, in gaining a reputation. And so. As, as he's able to in the 1840s, he, he joins uh, with the American troops that are going to be fighting in Mexico. And in the Mexican-American War, uh, kind of his first taste of glory comes when the American flag is, is shot down during one of the sieges that they're involved in. And he volunteers to run through enemy fire to hoist the flag again. And, and he does it and he's, he's not injured and he writes excitedly to his wife about, you know, how, how great it felt to be so courageous. Um, he's actually a pretty highly decorated officer from the Mexican American War. Um, one of the sources I read said he's one of the most highly decorated, um, officers of the Mexican American War. He, he's injured several times quite severely, um, a few times, but he's always one of the first to volunteer to, to go do something dangerous. And that works really well for him in his his next career move, which he's going to be assigned a leader of cavalry troops fighting against Native Americans. Um, first, uh, the Seminoles down in Florida, and then later um, out in Texas uh, against the Comanche people. And so he's he's going to learn to be successful. He's got to travel quick. He's got to travel light. He needs to use the element of surprise. And he's really good at that. And so that's kind of going to take us up to, you know, the 1850s. He's he's involved in in Native American conflicts. And then as we get into the 1860s, when Mississippi secedes from the Union, he's going to resign his uh, role in the U.S. military, and he's going to become a leader of Mississippi state troops, uh, volunteers. But he's not really feeling like there's going to be a lot of grand opportunities for recognition there. So eventually he's going to resign that position as well and and be put in charge of Confederate regular troops. And he's given command of a newly created Army of the West, and he feels really excited about that. You know, he's a personal friend of Jefferson Davis. He feels like it's a real honor. What he doesn't know at the time is he's actually the third person offered the job. The first two, um, Henry Heff and Braxton Bragg, turned it down. <laughs> so he's the third choice. But that's that's kind of what takes us up to 
this point, the Civil War, where we are. So many listeners just know that Jefferson Davis was the president of the Confederacy, but he has a pretty mm-hmm. good military background, political background, before he becomes president of the Confederacy. So there's a lot more mm-hmm. to Jefferson Davis than just, you know, just being the president. So, okay. Oh, absolutely. That's something we'll have to look into. So I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yes, Continue, please. No, no. So totally you, you've taken us up to that he was uh, in the Mississippi militia and he resigns and then becomes an officer in the regular, one of the regular Confederate armies, uh, the Army of the yes. West. Okay. That's right. So, so about where are we, we now in, in, in date and the war at this point? In the timeline. Right. So it, we're kind of up to the, the summer of 1861. And I want to switch gears just a little bit and talk about what's going on in Missouri, because that's going to play a really important role in what brings Van Dorn into Arkansas. So Missouri, as, as you and many of your listeners know, is a border state. And as such, it is really divided. There are really strong pro-union sentiments, especially in um, the St. Louis area um, and kind of north of there. And then there are also really strong pro-secession sentiments in especially the the southern portions of Missouri. So it's divided. And the Missouri State Guard is going to be your pro-secessionist troops. And then you're going to have federal uh, Missouri troops as well. And the the split here in Missouri is going to really intensify through the summer of 1861. And the rebel troops are going to be led by a former Missouri um, governor, Sterling Price, who actually at one point was pro-union, but changed his mind, starts pushing for secession. And they're going, they're, they're a pretty small force, but they're going to cause a lot of problems for federal movements in Missouri. They're, they're just big enough that they can really harass um, some of the federal lines. Now, the reason Missouri is so important is that the Mississippi River uh, runs along Missouri's eastern border. And from the Mississippi River, you can also access other rivers like the Tennessee and the Cumberland, which are going to push you into um, some of those union states, right? Illinois, Indiana, Ohio. And so you really, as as the union forces want to make sure that Mississippi River and Missouri are going to be held. So Sterling Price, he's going to really, he's going to be leading these troops, harassing um, the Union. So the leader of Union forces there in Missouri, um, Nathaniel Lyon, he's had enough of it, right? Sterling Price has got his base down in Springfield, which is in the southwest corner of Missouri. He's going to march his troops Um Oh, uh, two to 300 miles. Uh, off the top of my head, I can't remember the exact mileage between St. Louis and Springfield, but he's going to march them down to Springfield, and he's going to, um, in his mind, defeat the Missouri State Guard. What that is going to end up leading to is a battle called the Battle of Wilson's Creek in August 1861. And Lyon might have been able to defeat Price if Price were fighting on his own, but Price has helped. Um, down in Arkansas, there is a um, Confederate force led by General Ben McCulloch, who is a former Texas Ranger. And he's got Arkansas, um, Louisiana, Texas, and Indian Territory troops at his disposal. 
And he's going to answer a call from Sterling Price for help and march his troops into Missouri and stand with the Missouri State Guard at this Battle of Wilson's Creek, which is going to end up being a Confederate victory. Nathaniel Lyon is killed, along with a large number of, of Union forces, and it's going to kind of create a crisis for um, pro-Union Missourians, because there's going to be a call now to hold um, a meeting to vote for secession down in southwest Missouri. And so there's this kind of need, there's a need by the Union to remove these Confederates from Missouri once and for all. And so how do they plan on doing that? And Lindsay, who is the commanding officer for the Union forces out in that area? That's kind of complex because there are going to be a series of uh, Union military leaders. It's going to, the lion is killed, and then it's going to jump to, um, I think David Hunter is is the name of the next one, and then John C. Fremont, and then finally, um, Henry Halleck is going to take over the command of that army of the, the West. And Halleck is getting a lot of pressure from east of the Mississippi River, um, particularly from Don Carlos Buell, who wants him to send Missouri troops over into, you know, east of the Mississippi to help them fight. Like Albert Sidney Johnston is causing some problems for him over there. So he wants to siphon some of those Missouri troops. But Halleck says, you know, it's madness to take Missouri troops from Missouri when we're dealing with this Confederate pro-secessionist force. So Halleck names a New Yorker, um, Samuel Curtis, to command a new army that's going to be known as the Army of the Southwest. And Curtis is going to be aggressive. He decides to sweep down in the winter. This is going to be the winter of 1861 into early 1862. He's going to sweep down. He's going to occupy Springfield and push Price down into Arkansas. And and he does. Meanwhile, while all of this is going on, Earl Van Doren had moved into eastern Arkansas. And he was planning for a spring offensive. He was going to wait until the spring of 1862. He was going to march due north from eastern Arkansas on St. Louis. And he believed that they were going to be able to easily defeat the population, um, I'm sorry, the pro-union population in that area. And then once they took St. Louis, they would be able to control the Mississippi. And he had grand ideas of marching into Illinois and Indiana and then Ohio from there. In fact, he writes a letter um, to his wife and says, uh, it's on to St. Louis, then huzzah, right? We're going to really take this. And so he's totally caught off guard by Curtis's winter march into um, this, what had been pretty firmly held Confederate territory. Lindsay, do you believe, do you think that, or is it because we just emphasize more battles in the East? Do you think that Confederacy underestimated the importance of the West or there was just so much going on that we, particularly in the East, that the West is overshadowed. I think that's a great question. Um, if I, I think it's a little bit of both. Okay. Really, and we're going to talk about as we get into what happens after the Battle of Pea Ridge. There's not going to be a lot of opportunities after this battle for the Confederacy to lock down 
the Missouri um, and Arkansas area. There's going to be an attempt again in 1864, but there's going to be such big stuff. You know, right after Pea Ridge happens, Shiloh happens. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, east of the Mississippi River. So I think the other side of it is there's just so much going on. It's really these bigger armies are clashing. You don't ever have as big of an army west of the Mississippi as you have gathering east of the Mississippi. Okay. And the reason, uh, Lindsay, I was thinking that question because, you know, immediately when I think of the the West for the Union, it's um, Ulysses S. Grant and it's Don Carlos Buell. And uh-huh. and for the Confederacy, uh, after, you know, Henry Heath, um, I'm th- I, I was thinking that the, these Confederate generals are not as well known as other Confederate generals. So, no. I, I you know, so I don't know if they they underestimated the West or they just didn't have the manpower as much in the West as they did in the East. I think both of those things are true. I, you know, I like to really one of the things that's interesting about living in Arkansas is being able to see firsthand, you know, the eastern side of the state is really flat farmland. And so it, it makes sense that that's an area that you're going to want to hold because you've got a lot of, um, you know, crops being grown there that are really valuable. But here over on the western side, especially northwest Arkansas, it's mountainous. The winters are really bitter. You know, there's not even really going to be a substantial uh, Union or Confederate force that's going to need to stay over here to hold anything. Um, And so I think it's just maybe not even as valuable. We don't have any major rivers that go through here to act as a connecting point. You know, just maybe perhaps not going to be as valuable in the grander scheme of things when it comes to what, what the Civil War ends up being. And Lindsay, I sh- I need to be fair with our listeners uh, that being from the Philadelphia area, uh, one of the Confederate generals in the West that was very unsuccessful was John Pemberton, who was born and raised yeah. in Philadelphia. So uh, you're thinking more, you know, what was going on in the West for the Confederate armies and then again with the Union armies out there. So listeners, John Pemberton was a Confederate general and he was not also very successful. He surrenders Vicksburg to Ulysses S. Grant. So so Lindy, I'm sorry, I'd interrupt you. Continue, please. So we get to the point where uh, General Van Dorn Curtis has Curtis Yeah, so Van Dorn is, is shocked that the Curtis is marching in the winter. Um one other thing I want to mention about Van Dorn is a lot of historians kind of view him and maybe he's a little bit delusional. He has these visions of grandeur where he sees himself as being like a better commander than he is. And and we're going to see some evidence of that on his rapid uh, movement that he's going to have to make west. So when he gets word in, it's, it's in early February 1862, he gets word that Samuel Curtis has um come down from St. Louis. He's taken Springfield. And not only that, but he has run Price's army into Arkansas and followed them. And now Curtis has set up um, this this protected winter camp in, in the Ozark Mountains of Northwest Arkansas. So it becomes very important for him to rapidly make his way west. So it only takes him about four days to make the 200 plus mile journey, he's going to come from Pocahontas, Arkansas, across the state and end up down in a part of the Ozarks that we call the Boston Mountains. And on the way, they are dealing with some really bad weather. Um, it's snowing, it's icy, they have blowing wind. It is not the kind of weather that you want to be horseback riding 200 miles in four days through. But he, he sets a punishing pace. You know, he's a cavalryman. He's used to doing this um, 
back in the 1850s um, against native tribes. And so he's he's okay with the move. But there's an accident. He he makes it part of the way across Arkansas and they come to a river called the Little Red River. And it's in flood stage in the winter. And so they can't, the, the fort is impassable. So what they decide to do, they're going to swim the horses across and they're going to cross in canoe. And he goes first. And he's about 10 feet away from the bank. He's just left the bank and he's thrown from the canoe into yeah. the freezing water. He crawls out back into the boat, um, gets to the other side, refuses to change into dry clothes. Mm. He is just going to show how strong he is. I don't need that. I'm going to ride the rest of the day in these wet clothes. And by the next morning, he's developed a fever and chills, and he is sick for the rest of his trip west. In fact, they have to procure an ambulance for him to, to be pulled in because he's not well enough to ride. And so that's kind of just, you know, one example of, of his kind of impetuousness, his rashness is I'm going to go first before we actually try this out. Um, and he gets burned just as over. And, Lin- and Lindsay, you and I both know that, that, that there are many generals in American history that have this sense of being greater than really what they are or having these visions yes. of grandeur of what they could be. And that costs, unfortunately, costs a lot of men their lives. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, so he, he makes it into – sorry, well, go ahead. Sorry, let me – so he makes his trip in four days. Approximately how many uh, did he have in his army at that time? Because that, that's, that's moving pretty quickly for four days. Right. So at, at this point, he's just traveling with a small – uh, retinue. He's only got, and this is this is crazy to me. He's only got two uh, men who are traveling with him as subordinates. Wow. And um, that's going to be one of his failings that we're going to talk about. Is he doesn't have people that he's going to put in charge of key things like supply wagons. <laughs> he doesn't. He doesn't think like that because of his history as this this cavalry, quick moving, traveling with nothing type officer so he's it's him and his two um oh i can't think of the word right now but his two um guys who are his aide de camp yes aide de camp thank you (laughs) yes so he's only traveling with them and they're they're setting he sets a really punishing pace they are traveling about 55 miles a day on horseback without taking time to rest and he's sick so then they get to um the Boston Mountains, and he is excitedly welcomed by the troops that are waiting there. They've got artillery um, going off for him. They're cheering for him. And when he first um, stands before them, he he introduces himself um, in just a really bizarre, he says, um, behold your leader, basically, who comes <laughs> to bring you greatness and renown. Like, that's literally... Huh. I'm trying to find uh, his quote. He literally says, behold your leader, man, um, who comes to bring you renown and fame. And he's going to play on their excitement, right? We're going to do great. We're going to really um, show these Union troops what for. But he also plays on their fears of tyranny, right? Because if we don't win, here's what's going to happen. They're going to come in here and they're going to take over the land. One of the things I want to kind of point out here is he is trying to, in this creation of this new army, the Army of the West, he's actually unifying two very different 
military bodies. He's trying to unify Sterling Price's Missouri State Guard, which is more like a, a volunteer um, state force, and Ben McCulloch's regular troops from Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, and Indian Territory. So they're, they're different armies. And Sterling Price and Ben McCulloch don't get along. They don't like each other. Uh, they each feel like their particular command experience means that they should be the the number one. They each have different goals, right? Sterling Price's goal is for Missouri. Um, ben McCulloch only wants to move into Missouri if Arkansas or Indian Territory are at risk. And so they just have very, and they have very different personalities. Uh, Sterling Price is more flamboyant. He's more into the luxurious uh, things in life. And Ben McCulloch is a former Texas Ranger. He's very, um, very down to earth, maybe more concerned with his troops comfort. Although Ben McCulloch is known for wearing a black velvet suit into battle. So he does have kind of quirks of his own, um, which (laughs) makes him easily recognizable on the battlefield, unfortunately. Uh, Lindsay, I'm going to have to stop you right there because we are up against time for this program. So, okay. Yeah, we're so we're going to listeners. We're going to continue on with our next program with Lindsay as she continues to talk about General Earl Van Dorn. And we might even get to some of the Battle of Pea Ridge. There's a lot here. So, Lindsay, we (laughs) want to thank you for sharing with us today uh, some of the background and history of Earl Van Dorn and what's going out in in the West at the beginning of the war. So we're going to continue with Lindsay in our next program. So Lindsay, we want to thank you for coming and sharing with us, and we look forward to having you continue in our next program. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for, for coming. This is WFYL, 1180 AM. We are working for your liberties.